Please be seated. Our scripture today comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 8, and can be found on page 9 or in your Bibles. Hear God's word. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this chain charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with a sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I know it's lunchtime and we're all hungry, but I think we can do a little bit better than that. Good morning. There we go. A plus. All right. My name is McKinley Sprinkle, and I'm a senior at Trinity Episcopal School. You're probably used to seeing me down there playing accordion or piano, so I guess this means I'm moving up in the world. Um, Before we dive straight into the text, let me pray for us. Dear Lord, thank you for the word that we have just heard read and the truth that it contains. We ask now that you will give us ears to hear what you're saying to us this morning through your word, and that you will change our hearts by your spirit. In your name we pray, amen. First, I'd like to take a second to give a little bit of background about the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in jail in Rome, awaiting trial, and is pretty much his last hurrah before what he knows will be his eventual execution. The letter was written to Timothy, a church leader in Ephesus and one of Paul's closest followers. While we read verses 1 through 8, I'm only in charge of the first two. The first verse is pretty much what I see as Paul's mandate to Timothy. He's reminding him that everything he does, he's doing as a reflection of the glory of God, and in a way encouraging him and us that Jesus is coming again. Now the actual meat of Paul's reminder to Timothy comes in the next verse. He tells him to preach the word, to be ready in and out of season with complete patience. Now, if you're anything like me, when you hear the phrase, preach the word, the first thing that comes to mind is doing exactly what I'm doing right now, standing in a pulpit and telling a captive audience about Jesus. But in Paul's mind, that's not really correct at all. He tells Timothy to be ready in season and out of season, when he's ready or not, whether he's sitting in a church pew, buying groceries at the supermarket, or talking with a friend outside of English class. He gives no illusion to Timothy that this preaching gig is a part-time job, or just a Sunday morning thing. And the thing is, this extends to us as well. Whether we like it or not, as disciples of Christ, we are all charged with preaching the word in our own ways. What Paul certainly doesn't tell Timothy to do is to make sermons filled with happy flowers, rainbows, and sunshine. No, he reminds him to correct, rebuke, and encourage the Christians in his care. This may sound a bit harsh, but the truth is that sometimes that's exactly what we need. When we start straying into sin... What we need is not some gentle tapping on the shoulder, but rather a tug back to the right path, someone to very directly tell us where we're going wrong. 
Okay, so I'm already straying from a typical Presbyterian sermon by not having three points. So I'm going to try to balance that out by adding in a story. As many of you know, I was homeschooled up until eighth grade when I went to Trinity. The transition was relatively abrupt for me, particularly going from class size of one to over a hundred, many of whom already knew each other. Because I didn't initially make very many friends, I overcompensated by becoming really judgmental towards my peers, mostly through rolling my eyes and throwing in the occasional snort of derision. Now, I didn't think this was a particularly big, big deal at the time, but my English teacher, who was in her first year of teaching at Trinity, certainly did. She pulled me aside in the hallway about four or five weeks into school and pretty much straight up told me, hey, you're being really judgmental towards your classmates and you need to straighten up. That really caught my attention. I thought The thought that a teacher just as unfamiliar with the school as me would pull me aside and say that was honestly a little bit shocking, but I immediately saw what I was doing and tried to put a stop to it. I was rebuked by my teacher's action, but also encouraged because she helped me to see a way forwards. This is exactly what Paul is saying in this passage. He tells all of us, whether we're professional Christians or not, to be ready at all times to pull each other aside and correct each other. He isn't judging us to be judgmental, like I was, but instead is calling each other to reach out and lovingly remind our fellow Christians of the love of Christ and the message of the gospel. Now, while I don't know if my English teacher was consciously thinking about this, the fact that she was willing to confront me in an environment that was equally unfamiliar to both of us and tell me to get my act together was a pretty good example. She certainly didn't rehearse that encounter, but it was instead prepared to do the right thing out of season, and her rebuke certainly had a major effect on me. So maybe this week, look for someone in your life who may need some encouragement. Don't judge them wherever they are in life, but correct and encourage them in love, the same way that Paul tells Timothy to do. Similarly, is there a way that you need to be rebuked or guided back to the right path this week? Is there someone in your life, a mentor, a friend, or a family member, who you can ask to help you be accountable, someone you you can trust to rebuke you, and are you willing to be vulnerable enough to listen to them? Good morning. I'm Talia Moore, and I'm a senior at Freeman High School. Today I'm going to be talking about 2 Timothy 4, 3-5, and my experience in relation to God's directions. McKinley just talked about our duties as followers of Jesus, and Paul further explains these duties in verses 3-5. through For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Verse 3 says that people will gather around false teachers and false ideas in order to suit their own desires, turning their ears away from the truth. What I took from this section is something that we already know. God asks us and commands us to do hard things, and human tendency is to run in the opposite direction. I mean, there's a whole book in the Bible dedicated to teaching the lesson of Jonah, who did exactly that. Missions are a big part of life here at 3rd, and so I've been hearing about missionaries and mission trips since I was in kindergarten. When I was maybe in the 3rd grade, in Sunday school, we were visited by a missionary, and I felt this deep discomfort with myself. In In response to this discomfort and fear, I would pray to God that he would not send me to Africa to live among people I wouldn't know or understand. The thought of leaving my comfortable life, even to my elementary school age self, was terrifying. 
And so I convinced myself that I would not be one of the people that God sends to Africa. I, like Paul warns Timothy that people do, use prayer to satisfy my itching ears. Even while doing something holy, I was ignoring God and ignoring the conflict over this issue that still raged in my heart. Verse 5 of this passage points to what I find extremely comforting in times of conflict. It says, But you, keep your head in all situations and endure hardship, which implies what we know to be true. All things work together for good and fall into line with God's purpose, even the things that make us want to pull a Jonah. The fact that I never quite felt resolution led me to reopen the door to overseas missions when I was older. This happened when my parents decided to take me to Haiti, and through the beauty that I saw in the life of that country, God changed my heart. While sitting on the concrete rooftop at night and listening to distant voices, raging club music, and nocturnal roosters, I never felt more at peace. I, of course, don't know what the future holds, but because Haiti, a place like Africa, full of unpredictability, remains my favorite place to be, then if I'm sent to Africa, I will go. In verse 4, the message translation says that people will chase mirages and turn their backs on the truth. In today's society, a mirage could be anything, money, power, or the American ideal of success. Worldly items and ideals promise the benefits that only God can give. I'd say that the mirage I most often chase is control, as I frequently find myself thinking that I have significant power over the direction of my life. For me, this is currently playing out, like any high school senior, within the college application process. All of the applications have told me to decide upon a life path, and it has been hard to look past this to the truth that in my effort to control my life, I could simply be chasing mirages. At this point, I have finished polishing and submitting applications, but this has not made my life significantly easier. Waiting for decisions is proving to be much harder than the applications themselves. Waiting for the decision from the school that I'd like to attend was particularly hard, and finding out that I had been deferred, which means, guess what? More waiting was even harder. God frequently asks us to wait, whether it be for a grade on a test, for a job promotion, or an answer to a prayer. I don't mean to say that what I'm experiencing is anything like what Paul was experiencing in prison, but there are similarities. Paul is waiting at this point for his death, but as with anyone who believes, death means life and a future in the arms of Jesus. I am also waiting for these next few discernible steps of my future to take shape, and staring into the unknown is not something I'm good at. Enduring this while remembering God's goodness and his plan is the struggle I and countless other seniors currently face. Turning to despair because of rejection is so tempting, but Paul reminds us to keep going and endure hardship, for it too shall pass. Paul ends this particular set of instructions with these words in verse 5. Do the work of an evangelist and discharge the duties of your ministry. Evangelism was what God calls us to do, but it doesn't always mean traveling to Africa. Paul is simply saying, wherever God places you, do your work well and don't ignore the opportunities to work for his kingdom. For the message of God was depending on Timothy, just as it depends today on me and you. Good morning. I know, third good morning. You guys are hanging in there. My name is Mary Dryden Mayo, and I'm a senior at Maggie Walker Governor's School. But you may know me better as Reverend Gina Mayo's daughter, who, by the way, I am beating to the third church pulpit this morning. So if you see her around, mention it. (laughs) As we've just heard, Paul is encouraging Timothy to speak the truth and to listen to calling. I'll be talking about verses 6 and 7. 
For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now, when I first read this, my thought was that Paul is getting a little bit arrogant here, because when I think of my own life, I cannot say the same words with confidence. Personally, I tend to shift between pessimism about my character to worldly ego. But then I read the words again. Paul fought and finished. He didn't win, necessarily. As one scholar has explained, this verse can be translated to, I have kept the rules. I have not been disqualified. I love that wording a lot. I don't really do sports, ever. So (laughs) disqualifications takes me all the way back to elementary school when my parents forced me to do swim team. And there were two goals for the mini mites, as we were called. One, keep your feet off the bottom of the pool. And two, don't drown. (laughs) If you believe that we are, in fact, God's children, we are just trying to stay afloat, not make states or win the relay, which I never did. Paul kind of talks a lot about sports in this metaphor, which was a disconnect for me. But with the phrase, don't be disqualified, I realize that you can change this metaphor to whatever suits you. I have finished the race can be, I finished a series of theatrical productions, if you are me, or I finished my dissertation, or I finished working and I'm retired, or whatever suits you. Similarly, Paul doesn't specify how fast he was running. If you know my mom, you've probably heard the line, it never once says in the Bible that Jesus ran anywhere. He walked. I've probably heard that line like roughly 2,000 times, but the point is that speed doesn't matter. There are no rankings after this race. There is only completion. Paul doesn't claim perfection, something that I myself am always desperate for. If any of you all have applied to college in the past 20 years or so, you've heard of this thing called the common application. There is one specific, most dreaded part of the application entitled activities. On this page, you have to state the name of the activity, your leadership position, what grade levels you did it in, how many weeks per year you did it, how many hours per week you did it, and finally, worst of all, you have to sum it up in 120 characters. I have never questioned my life quite as much as when I was forced to quantify my high school experience like that. But in these verses, Paul isn't filling out an application for anything. He knew exactly where he was going. Paul hadn't forgotten his past as a Christian killer that McKinley told us about earlier, yet he still trusted that God had forgiven him and would present him with all the glory of heaven. One scholar describes this attitude as Olympian calm or serene confidence. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul reassures us that he's not gloating by saying, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul wasn't applying for a material, earthly thing like college. He was praising the Holy Spirit working within him and the glory his relationship with God had brought to the world. Earlier, Talia mentioned being sidetracked by mirages, earthly things that keep us from seeing the righteousness of heaven. Are there things in your own life that you've replaced the race for faith with? 
My race is definitely wanting the spotlight on stage, and I get extremely tied up when I'm not cast as the star in a production. Do you find yourself planning your own timeline or this lifelong race around things of this world? Paul reminds us all what comes at the end of the race, and that's death. The amazing thing about Paul's humble assurance is that he is facing present execution. Have any of you all heard of Don Quixote de la Mancha? It's a story by a man named Miguel de Cervantes about a guy who values honor and chivalry so much that he wants to die in battle striving to reach unreachable morals. Paul has the same spirit and readiness for death here. He is fighting to the death for what he believes is the only race worth running, and that's the love of God. I want to leave you all with two questions. One, are you running the race for Christ or have you replaced it? And two, Are you willing to die striving for whatever your race might be? Good morning again. Um, My name is Basola Ulloway, and I go to St. Gertrude High School, and I'm going to be talking about verse 8, the last verse. I know what you're thinking, finally the last one, but before your brain goes into cruise control, I want to point out a few important things I think God is saying through Paul that we can use in our daily lives. McKinley talked about the importance of rebuking, correcting, and encouraging. Talia helped us understand how to turn our itching ears towards God's truth, and Mary Dryden talked about the importance of finishing the race. Paul begins, Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. Paul is very confident, and not in a prideful way, as Mary Dryden talked about. Why? Because he knows his crown is not by good works, not because he thinks he deserved it, or because he's a good person. Granted, Paul was a pretty awesome guy. He was literally blinded by Jesus and then served him for the rest of his life, helping hundreds of people come to Christ. So we can't compare ourselves to Paul's works, but what we do have in common with Paul is that God saved Paul and God saved us. God is giving Paul that crown just because he's God and he loves him, and like he loves you and me. Not because I'm really awesome or I go to church every Sunday or I tithe exactly 10%. Ask yourself, do you actually believe God is giving you that crown of righteousness because you worked really hard for it or don't do anything that bad compared to the standards of the world? Or are you certain you're getting that crown because you know you're a sinner who needs saving in the love of God? In short, are you earning your way through life? When I think of a crown, I think of a shiny gold jeweled one that a queen would wear. The first image that popped into my head when I read this was the crown of Esther, the VeggieTales version. <laughs> a cute little tiara with a single shiny jewel that I loved as a kid. But this crown that God has given us is even greater and a better gift than any crown we could think of. Paul reminds us that we are able to receive this crown of righteousness and the gift of being with Jesus in heaven one day because Jesus had the crown of thorns. Jesus took our place on the cross because we can't earn our salvation or earn our way out of sin. Jesus endured torture and died for us so we could receive that crown in certainty. Again, this crown is not one of a victor like in the Olympics. You did not earn this crown. God gave it to you, and he gave you, even gave you the gift of being able to have faith in him. 
Now that we understand this gift, we need to remember to be aware of other crowns that make us believe we're earning our way into heaven or deserve something from God, such as getting a job promotion and believing it was because of your hard work and not because of God's grace, or maybe getting a certain grade because you think you studied really hard for it and you deserved it. You may have studied hard, but God enabled all that information to come to your head. As, as you're well aware by now, college is on all of our minds and decisions are coming back. I can easily think, well, all my four years of hard work have really paid off, which is why I'm going to a particular school. But that is not the case. It was God's grace over my life. The righteous judge gives a crown to all those who have loved his appearing, all of those who have used the gift of faith he has given us by trusting in him during difficult situations. Even when we feel like God is abandoning us, or we feel like you did something so wrong, you don't deserve the crown anymore. Hebrews 11, Faith in Action says, Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Paul is assured about what he does not see, heaven and confident in its hope, the crown of righteousness, all because of his strong faith in God. Also, with it being Black History Month, I want to share a short quote from Maya Angelou, award-winning African-American author who says, Faith is the evidence of the unseen. Paul kept the faith, not perfectly, but he finished it, and he's urging us to as well. And so, as we think about 2 Timothy verses 4, 1 through 8, we are called to correct, rebuke, and encourage, whether that be a gentle nudge or a firm feedback in season and out of season. We are called not to tune our ears away from the truth, and we are called to fight the good fight and finish the race. Lastly, we must remember to be confident in the gift of the crown of righteousness that God has given and waiting for us in heaven, not because we earned it, but because of God's grace. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for gathering us here today. Help us not only hear Paul's words, but may we do something with them, big or small. I pray that you bless each and every individual in the sanctuary and all those who hear this message. May we leave today knowing you are with us, you died for us, and you love us. May we use these truths to live our lives through you. Amen.